0: There might not be any fans, but it's still the greatest annual rugby event in the world. The Six Nations starts on Saturday. England are the current holders, but can Eddie Jones' side hold on to their crown? Or will France, Wales, Ireland, or even the Scots make a tilt for the title? I'm Lawrence Delalio, and joining me today are Ruck regulars Owen Slott and Alex Lone. I'm delighted to say that we have a true rugby legend on the Ruck: former Lions and Wales Grand Slam winning captain, Sam Warburton. Gentlemen, good
2: morning to everyone. Hey, Lol. Great to have you on, Sam. Thanks for having me on. No, great to be here. There are proper times regularly now. You've made it onto the ruck as well. <laughs>
3: I'm with the big boys now. <laughs> well, come on, Owen. You, what you
0: what you really meant to say is it's nice to have a proper rugby legend on the show, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, finally we've got one. <laughs> Gents, obviously it's a it's a very exciting week. We're you know, we we're, we're going ahead with the Six Nations, albeit in a slightly different environment. But before I start with that, um Sam, lockdown, I mean, obviously I've I've chatted to you a few times. I guess it's quite busy in your household with with your young young kids running around.
3: Yeah, lockdown has been um, pretty relentless for us with obviously all the homeschooling and stuff like that. But I've actually... I've actually quite enjoyed being at home and having the time with the little one, you know, as so I can't complain, there's people in much, much worse situations. So it's been busy, but it's, it's a nice busy, yeah.
0: Well, I'm sure you'd be looking forward to to uh, getting down to Cardiff.
3: Yeah, so even, even without fans, I, I just can't wait to get back in Principality again, because it's been shut as, uh, it's been used as a hospital, you know, for the last best part of 12 months now nearly. So even though we can go back there with no fans, it'd just be great just to be back at You know, what is home of rugby back in Wales? That's with uh, our opener against uh, Ireland. So, yeah, can't wait for it to kick off and get stuck into that.
0: The Six Nations kicks off on Saturday with uh, Italy against France at 2.15. And then, of course, the 150th anniversary of the Calcutta Cup, England against Scotland at 4.45. And then the next day, Sunday, Wales and Ireland make their entrance from Cardiff. And that kicks off at three o'clock. Alex and Owen, you guys have been very close to to England and Eddie Jones. Uh, I mean, they are... The current champions. They've won, I think, three out of the last five titles, albeit uh, on points difference last time around. I mean, the the Autumn Internationals, the the Nations Cup, as it were, gave us um, a different brand of rugby from what we're possibly used to. Eddie Jones tells us that, you know, all these styles are, are all about cycles, really. And at the moment, we're in a kicking cycle. But Alex, if I start with you, I mean England are are probably just about favourites given their given their form and the fact that they've uh, they're the current champions, and maybe the fact that they've got three games at home. I mean, do you do you see it that way?
4: I think that is probably what just tilts the balance towards them in terms of being favourites because because they welcome France to to Twickenham. France were there in the autumn. And England scraped an extra time win in, in the final of the, the Autumn Nations Cup, but it was, as we discussed at length on here, it was sort of second and third string players for France. They'll be back a uh, full tilt, minus the, the odd injured player, but losing Intermac. While on the surface it looks like a blow, Jalabert has been carving it up in uh, in, in the top fourteen, and and I think he, you know he's he'll be just as dangerous. That looks like a pivotal fixture for me, France-England. I can understand why England would be marginal favourites. And it's one of those years where they'd benefit from having three home games and, and the away games, are, um, which are often the most challenging, Wales away and, and Ireland away, this year don't look like being as as treacherous as they have been in years gone by just because of of the, the, the respective situations that Wales and Ireland find themselves in.
0: Uh, Owen, um, do you think a lot rests and depends on how those Saracens players the likes of Billy Vinopola played once in about a couple of months and Owen Farrell Elliot Daly Jamie George none of them playing any rugby since before Christmas do you think a lot hinges on how they're able to sort of hit the ground running they, they're saying that they've, they've been training really hard which I've no doubt they have but it's not quite the same as playing week in week out is it
2: definitely they have to um, come back in form uh- I think that there's a sort of the science sports science has taken uh, uh match preparation to a level now where where people can hit, can hit the ground running to use that expression far more ably than, than in the past where kind of the acceptance was you needed two or three weeks to play I mean we've seen Mario Itoje and Makovu Nipola come back from injuries in the past and and really hit a very high level. Quite quickly, I, I mean, there's a, a former Lions captain on this podcast who uh, missed half of a Lions tour and then came straight back into a test match. So um, so, so I, I think it can be done. Billy Napoleon is sort of the one that we question on that front because there's always this sort of belief that he needs games. But Scottish fans won't thank me for saying this, but the fact is that England start with Scotland and then they have Ireland. And you, you have to say that if those Saracens players... Did need a game or two to to get up to full speed. Then then the the running orders come
4: in the right way. So I'm just now kind of rethinking my answer about um, England being slight favourites because of because they're playing France at home, which I can understand why that might be the case with the bookies. But Sam, when you're, I'm interested to know from you know what, what home advantage looks like without fans. I and mean, you've obviously played there in all these kind of enormous cauldrons with, with passionate fans, and that's that's often often what we base home advantage on. Do you think it gets nullified? I think so. Like like Lawrence, you, know, you remember when we were doing Europe in the
3: knockout stages, you know, just gone by when lockdowns are over, and never has the away team won so much in a quarter final. I don't think that was a coincidence because there was no crowd. So I know there's the home there's the home advantage and away advantage still because you have the sort of luxuries of being, for example, you know, in your, in your, in your your regular team hotel, the week build up and you haven't got any travel. So you probably get an extra half a day's training, all these, you know, small things which can add up, but the, they're the small advantages of home advantage, but the main thing is obviously the crowd. So without the crowd, I would it would be interesting because it happened in Europe where the away team has won more. I do expect to see probably a couple more away wins than normal. And it'd be fascinating to see Scotland as well because they typically haven't travelled very well in Six Nations and that's been their biggest downfall and why looking at line selections, why coaches haven't tended to on with Scottish players because they don't turn up when they go away from home, which is what a Lions tour is all about. So it'd be really interesting to see if that dynamic does affect the Scottish team or whether they can travel better. So I don't expect home advantage to be as, as big a deal as it has been over the past years with no crowds.
0: Sam, what do you make of England? I mean, obviously, they are the champions. They're the team that everyone wants to beat. They've, they've got you know, like all sides, a few issues coming into this championship in in the in the sense there's one or two players injured, no no Joe Launchbury. Bit of a different look to them, but you know, do you still see them as the team to beat or 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 is it neck and neck with France?
3: Yeah, I I agree with Owen with like say that the two months it would have been well, December the sixth, you know, since the, a lot of those Saaris boys have played. It's the same as a World Cup. So when you and they would have had a really tough, you know, sort of pre-season type of training. So When you go into a World Cup, you don't play for about three months. And then you go into an international, it's a friendly fixture, but it's still an international quality fixture, you know, when you have your warm-up games. So players are quite used to, and those guys have gone through a World Cup cycle, they're quite used to having a two-month preseason rolling straight into an international game, albeit it won't have the pressure of the Six Nations, a World Cup warm-up. But they can do that. And I think if it's a younger player, they would need games. But those guys now, they're some of the most experienced players out there, you know, in Europe and the world, so that they, they know what it takes to play in Southall rugby. And I do think that the two months will be nice for them and they'll come back, you know, okay. And like you say the fixture list as well, I think it sort of does favor them slightly. No disrespect. You no, know, they're not playing France, for example, first game up, in which case it might be an issue, but I expect England to, to win. Yeah. I mean, I just think England are playing. I know there was that autumn awesome nations cup game. People look at how France came to England and second, third string, but there's a different dynamic when it's Six Nations. There's different pressure on it. You know, I think the French respond slightly differently to when there's a Six Nations game when there's a lot of pressure on it. But I expect England because they got a France, France are close to it. But at the minute, England have got unmatched physicality, which is what wins games more often than not these days.
0: Alex, as a man who's closer to the England camp than anyone in the written press, that's for sure. Um, I mean, England have got some challenges, no Mako Vinopola at, at, at loose head. And it'd be interesting to see whether they go with, with Beno Urbano, I guess, or, or Ellis Genj. And the, the other interesting thing is having um, only ever had two scrum halves in his squad ever, all of a sudden, Eddie Jones has, has got three scrum halves. He's brought in Harry Randall. Mm-hmm. So I guess the key, you know, will will the likes of Randall get a look in, in the championship? Who starts at loose head for you? And w- what's going to happen in the midfield? Because uh, he's brought in Paolo Dogwu. Um, will he just go to the tried and tested sort of Farrell forward axis? Or, or is there going to be a bit, a bit more uh, chance for, for others to shine?
4: I think that midfield combination is is the key, really. Eddie at the end of the autumn eventually sort of conceded that that for all the, the refereeing interpretations that he complained about and the slow ball, he, he he did concede that England's attacking game had lacked cohesion. And I think at, at, obviously at the heart of that was he can't quite get the balance he wants in midfield when Manu Tulang is not around. And he, you know he tried Oli Lawrence played didn't do anything wrong, but the Farrell Slade Lawrence combination didn't quite spark. The Ford Farrell Slade combination didn't quite spark, and he's got Paolo Dogu who be a, you who know, he, he, he talked up really highly, which is very unusual for Eddie to big up a player because his his usual approach is to is to try and keep them below the radar and keep them, you know, it's a team first thing. But he did he did praise him to the hilt. So I, I just wonder whether at some point the Six Nations will see a slight reshuffle and a dog get a get a chance. Yeah, front row they're missing their their three most senior props. Sinclair's banned for the for the first game against Scotland. is uh, injured and, and Joe Marler uh, has declared himself unavailable. So I would expect them to start with Will Stewart um, and with Ellis Genge against Scotland, uh, with Benno finally getting a, a chance on the bench. He's been in England squad for probably two years, tr- training with the team. And when he's not injured, he's always been mm. there. So it feels like it's time for him to step up. They've got amazing depth in the front row, same in the back row. And with Harry Randall, I mean, everyone's screaming for him to, to play. I just... Just wonder whether he's picked him to keep him out of Wales's clutches.
2: Can I just say on the Benno Obano front, it's a really outstanding interview with him in the Times today, where, where he talks about where he talks about how, how the fact he's been, he, he was first in the squad three years ago. No, it's, it's a really good interview. Even though I did, do say it myself because I wrote it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very humble of you, Sam. As someone who who, um, who seems to have a fantastic relationship with the referees, I'm, I'm fascinated to understand from your idea, from your perception what you think the key interpretations will be or what the things that, that are really going to be, you know, the watch, the, the outs for the players. I mean, obviously I, I mentioned in the, in the paper last week that the, the, the tackle height, I think is, uh, you know, is going to be a really interesting one that they're going to continue to to stamp out the high tackles. You know, no player wants to necessarily go in there and, 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 and hit someone in the head, but we're seeing a lot of tackles riding up. And I think there were, you know we we saw last campaign how one you know how discipline can can cost a team in championships you, i mean do you see the breakdown and the tackle height being the the, the the big areas
3: yeah i definitely agree tackle height you know the, the this when people say discipline i mean discipline covers all the aspects but the main aspects of it is is the just the legality of your tackle height and if i think that's the one thing that referees particularly in the six nations as well where there's going to be an enormous audience watching who perhaps don't watch the rugby like we all watch it at club level. They're going to really want to protect the players, you know, going into this campaign where there's going to be, you know, 80, 90% of viewers are going to be casual rugby fans young young people and players watching it, they're going to want to have a good image of rugby. So you can imagine they're all sat down, the coaches and right, number one, we've got to really clamp out high tackles, head injuries, you know, anything, you know, even clear outs to the head, all these sorts of things, which we've seen being punished quite firmly. Well, I've seen it anyway in club games, you know, Liam Williams got red carded for a head collision in, in a rut in a clear out. So, with that, yeah, I definitely agree. I think if you want to get on the right side of a referee, you have got to be squeaky clean regarding your tackle heights, your ruck entries, and and trying to avoid the head where where possible. Obviously, some this rugby is, is sometimes unavoidable, but that's definitely going to be, I think, the biggest focus for referees and where you can get onside.
0: And Sam Wayne Pibbett had a really tough act to follow in, in Warren Gatland because the, the Welsh public and a lot of other people in rugby fell in love with, with with Gatland in terms of Wales, in terms of what he did with the with the Lions. I mean, they've they've won what three games out of ten uh, against Italy and Georgia. And listen, you were part of that coaching setup for a little while. I'm, I'm fascinated to know the reasons why you, you decided to step away and you know what can we expect from from Wales sort of second six nations un, under Wayne
3: yes yeah, so, i mean i was uh, chatting to Wayne Uh, when he was appointed coach and he just said oh I wouldn't mind picking your brains on the setup you know what you thought of the previous regime what you think could be done moving forward I think quite deeply about the game which I think people haven't really realised until I finish playing (laughs) I start talking about it I actually you know I do quite we're we're sensitive
0: we're sensitive souls That's you're
2: not going to fit in around here Sam if you think about the game
3: (laughs) so I think people thought I literally just ran around like a headless chicken just trying to hit people but no I actually used to study it a bit you know I I told him everything I thought and and I was called in for another meeting and said, would you want to be part of the coaching staff? And I thought, I hadn't even done my level one. Like I did I had no ambition to be a coach, but yeah, long story short, maybe I thought, maybe I went back into coaching a little bit emotionally and perhaps that was naively for myself because the opportunity to go back with the Welsh team was, was too good to turn down. But then I guess like when I was back in coaching, I realised I was only meant to be in on a campaign to campaign basis, but like I realised you can't do that. You know, if you're going to be a coach, you've got to be all in because you've got to be over all the players outside of camp knowing what they're doing performances wise. And and for me, it was too much of a commitment. when I already had quite a lot going on anyway. And I said, oh, if you're going to coach, you have got to be just a coach. You, you can't do a load of other things. And plus it was taking me right away from my family, which is kind of one of the reasons I finished playing in the first place. And I realised oh, I'm straight back in the deep end here, away from home, going to be away from home a lot. And it was going to be worse with COVID, bubbling up all mm-hmm. the time. And I just had a newborn all these things, I suddenly thought, you know what, I think this is my mistake. I've probably naively gone into coaching and it wasn't for me, to be honest. I enjoyed some aspects of it. Other aspects of it, of it I didn't enjoy too much. So I'm trying to condense that as much yeah. as I can. That's, no, a, no, listen, that's listen, in a I know, nutshell I mean, why.
0: Yeah. Listen, you, you gave your life to international rugby and playing for Wales and, and, and playing. So it's, it's no wonder you, you fe- I think we'll allow you a breather when you, uh, <laughs> when you finally <laughs> retired.
2: So Sam, just just on that, did you not sort of scratch an itch at all with the coaching? Did, it didn't make you feel a little bit like, oh, or maybe when my life settled down a bit, I could give it a go. Or did you like have a taste of it and come to the other conclusion? Actually, it's not, it's not what I want to do.
3: No, there's things I love. So like, you know, being pitch side, like I, I'm pitch side with Neil Jenkins. So, I mean, we, we got the H2O bibs on and I was literally getting people pulling me over. I was like putting petrol in a petrol pump once and a guy he pulled up next to me in Wales so you can't go anywhere anyway when there's a rugby game he said oh congratulations on your new waterboy appointment I think you'll make a great waterboy I was like yeah, thanks <laughs> 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 I was like yeah that's that's literally all I'm paid
0: to do he might, um, might be one of those casual <laughs> rugby observers that hasn't tuned in for exactly. the six stations.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, I mean, it, it was brilliant to be back pick side again, and like with Neil Jenkins, who's such a passionate Welshman, I was loving it. You know, it was, like I remember the Twickenham game was great, going back to England, and and like you take some real, like I took some real pride in some of the things that say, like from a small perspective, like say when we played England, we only got turned over once in that whole game in Twickenham, and like because that's something which I was, you know, that was my area of the game. I was really proud of that. And I, you know, I would suddenly like go away from the game, even though I wouldn't talk to anyone about it. Like I was really pleased with how that went. So like you get those little wins as a coach, but as then... Like you weigh up the other options then of like, like I say, being away from home and things like that. That that wasn't it wasn't worth it then for me, if I'm being honest. As much as I love being part of the national team, maybe I naively thought it would replace playing. But for me, you know, coaching doesn't replace playing for me. It does for some people, but yeah, it didn't. It didn't for me.
0: Let's be honest. Pivot had a poor first twelve months. I mean, we can't dress it up any other way. There's obviously going to be a bit more pressure on him having Ireland at home and then Scotland away in the first two games. I think gives Wales as good a chance as they're likely to, to ever have to. To get off to to a good start you know what, what are you expecting from them and who are the key players for that for, for, from that Welsh squad obviously Alan Wynn is, is captain and you know there's that balance between some experience and trying to bring some younger players through
3: no you're right now is the time to deliver and th- there is no excuses now you know teams have been together now for even though there was the summer tour cancelled you know they would have had a good can't think maybe 10 games together that's now that's enough time. That's that's enough time now, you know. So, yeah, now is the time definitely to deliver. But I, I do look. I'm thinking Wales have to literally have to win one of their first two games because if they don't, you know, they go to France last game of the of the campaign with potentially only one win against Italy. So. Because I can't—I'd be honest. You know, I'm, I'm a passionate Welshman. I'd love them to win, but if I gotta be realistic about this, I—I I can't see—and I'm—I'm sorry to say it to Welsh supporters, but I can't see us beating France or or England and and Scotland and Ireland and Wales. I think we're all kind of well. didn't convincingly beat us in in the autumn series, and so did Scotland. So Wales aren't in a great place right now if you're looking at it on paper and. The thing is with Wales, I think we've always had, and I I do worry whether 2019 was the last of the recent era, we've always had X-Factor players who can bail us out. So, I mean, Toby Faletau and Justin Tippec were outstanding in our last game against Italy, but you look at all the British Lions that we've got, they haven't hit the heights that they've hit previously in the past four or five years or in their career. And we've got a couple of young guys coming through who I think could be like Lions bolters. They've got that potential, but the experience of the team. So when you look at the experienced players in England, they'll, they'll rock up and they play for England. The experience that we've got and the spine of the team that we've had haven't been playing as well as they have been. They haven't been having those X-factor moments and you need those X-factor players. So... You know, for Wales, it's either going to be are the youngsters going to significantly step up and become the new breed and the new iconic era of of Welsh players, or are the Lions boys going to recapture some form and, and that's going to help catapult us a bit as well. So one of those two things has to happen for Wales to to win more than two games, I think.
0: Oh, and I'd like to just talk to you about France because um, you know it's important that we they're building and building and building. You you interviewed. Um, Ibanez uh, recently, and uh, I know you enjoyed that very much. They've obviously got Fabian Galtier and, and Sean Edwards, who Sam knows, and, and we all know a huge amount about. I mean, the, can they build on that form in the autumn? I mean, are we? Are they, they've got what, Italy in the first game, then they then they get their real first test against against Ireland, I guess, uh, in Dublin. What, what, what do you what do you see from France? Having chatted to their manager Ibanez recently.
2: Yeah, I think they will build. I- I- Ibanez was, was so passionate about it. And I thought it was really interesting that they, they, he said, uh, I said, where am I talking to you? Are you, are you at the um, training ground camp in, in Marcosi outside Paris? And he said, no, we've gone down to-, to Nice again. And he said, the reason we went down to Nice is because this project, which he calls Fabian Gaultier Ibanez New Era thing, they call it the- their project. They started in, in Nice in January last year. And they took all all this sort of um extraordinarily new young um, generation of players down to Nice and they did their fortnight's preparation down there and, and he said that's where it all began. That's where it all began. He said, So we decided we've got to go back there again to remind them that this was where the project began and now we're gonna take them take him on one step further. And you know, they they did outperform all expectations in the last six nations, and now now we have there there are expectations upon them. But you 've got to remember that they are such a young team that they 're theoretically on that improvement curve that 's still going up quite steeply everyone, everyone knows what 's going to be coming at them now, but um, when you 've got DuPont at your number nine that as your number nine that doesn 't often, often really help you but uh, so I, I expect I expect more and better from them, as Alex said they 're missing Entomac, but um, the backup crew's not bad either no they they 're very good i mean alex it 's hard to believe that they haven 't won. A
0: Six Nations title for eleven years—that must irritate them and irk them somewhat. As Owen said, no Entomac, no uh, Denver Bar. Uh, so Denver Bar—he's a football player. No Bamba and no Wokey. I mean, it, they're still in good shape, right? I mean, they've got—they've got some amazing talent. They're, at club level, they seem to be producing—you know—big, big performances with the likes of Toulon going well, Toulouse going well, Bordeaux. So you see them as a real threat. Do you think that game against England in March is—is is, is the pivotal game?
4: Yeah. I definitely see it building up towards that weekend. I think, obviously, Dupont and uh, and Tumac and that bat line took all the plaudits really in the in in last year's Six Nations. But I just think you look at you look at the rock upon which you know they're able to operate, and players like Charles Olivant and Greg Aldrich are just they they seem to have taken the French for helped take French forward play mm-hmm. to to another level, and, and they were outstanding. And in any other year, either of them could could have been Six Nations player of the tournament. Um, I thought both of them in, in that back row were. And in terms of yeah, eleven years since they won the title, they they must look at that front, at that Scotland game and rue that punch, which which really cost them that game. They lost their heads a bit that day, and and maybe a, a coaches as, as wily as, as Eddie Jones will will be looking at that and and will realise that it, you know a young team. Passionate, but but potentially volatile. Could, could they get under their skin? That could be a, a, a route to to, to to defeating them. But I think that they're a year older. They're a year more mature. But they don't just have the stardust out 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 wide. They've got a real um, rock solid pack, and with some highly impressive players there. So yeah, they'll be dangerous.
2: I think that's really interesting about uh, can, can we get under their skin? I think that's one of the hallmarks of this new team is is that they're, they're they're not that they don't seem to come with the with the stereotypes of the French teams of the previous decade and a half, if you like, where they, they might just fall fall apart when they, when it gets too hot, or they might be a bit flaky in the wrong situations. So this is the new crew, and they and and one they've got Sean Edwards who is thumping away on the discipline and 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 two they seem to have that sort of a different kind of self-belief about them
0: I still think they that there's listen there's there's always room for improvement but I still think that from a sNC from a fitness perspective I think certainly in the type five the way that I watch t- top 14 rugby is just ever so slightly different I still think they've got a little way to go if they want to you know get their type five forwards in the game, you know, particularly in the last 20, 30 minutes when, when when games are won and lost. But on the back of what we saw against England in Paris last year, where they absolutely battered England, I mean, do you see them being a real threat?
3: Yeah, I was going to say, because I think Sean Edwards being added to that group, I think, you know, they never really looked at coaches outside of their, like, bubble, their French bubble. And I've seen Sean Edwards speak to a well, I can't say his name, a Welsh front row player. And he said, if you sort your diet out, and, you, and you're not so lazy. You could be a British lion, and I'm pretty sure he'd be saying that across the French team. He won't mind ruffling a few feathers, and that's what yeah. I think. That's what I think France have needed. He will say you're not fit enough to beat England. You know, when he first went in, you're not fit enough to beat Ireland. You're not fit enough to beat Wales consistently, and that's been proven over the past ten years. I think they've needed him. So say like you look at the semi-final or was it the quarterfinal of the World Cup where was it Valhamina elbowed, you know, right? Uh, The the Welsh, I think it was Aaron Wainwright. And that basically cost France the game. Like if that happened under Sean's regime while he was coaching, honestly, I would have loved to have been in that team meeting on the Monday. And and Lawrence, you probably remember those. You will call him out and make sure that no French player ever wants to do that ever again. And their discipline has been... Gradually improving because that's such a massive part of the game these days regarding territory possession stuff. So I do think that their discipline will get much better. And you could look at the fact that when they're playing England, it's the fourth weekend. For France, mm. that's perfect because if they were playing England first, first weekend up, England I think would be pretty hot favourites because France coming back together, England are well knit. You know, they're gonna have three reviews, you know, three previews and, and three games to learn from by the time they get to England. So Sean's defensive system obviously it'll take a game or two for them to get it all back in sync again and they got Italy up first that's a good game they can get away with making a few mistakes. Mm. Uh, I remember Wales when I was coaching and we played Italy first up we beat them by about 40 points you know last season just gone but we had some howling defensive errors. But we got away with it because it's Italy. No disrespect, and we might come on to that later. But so they can get away with that against Italy. But by the time they come to play England, those tools will be sharpened. So it's going to be a straight shootout, I think, between England and France. But the fact they've got Sean then to nurture them again for another five weeks before they play England will make that game even more tasty.
0: Yeah, I do remember um, Sean Edwards and Raphaël Libardès coming together when when yeah. Raph came to play for Wasps, and uh, we had a we had a rather poor performance against the Scarlets. And in the uh, in the in the debrief on the Monday morning, you know, Sean Edwards, as you say, Sam, no, didn't worry about anyone's reputation. He was absolutely climbing into Ibanez, and <laughs> Ibanez came up yeah. to me afterwards and said, um, you know, I couldn't understand Sean's accent. He's from Wigan. Uh, what was he saying?" <laughs> I said to him, uh, "You know, I know him perfectly well that he could understand what he was saying." I said he. He was saying that basically he thought we'd signed Raphael Ibanez, the captain of France, 99 caps, but it appears that we've signed an imposter. (laughs) 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 And uh, anyway, suffice to say we played the Scarlets again the following week and, poor old Matthew Reese was uh, stretching off after 20 minutes so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do see France as being um, you know being a, a very tough nut to crack and I think they're going to get better and better enjoy more rugby insight and analysis throughout the season with the Times and the Sunday Times get a subscription today and get one month free search the times forward slash the ruck for more details Gents, before we uh, bring in Peter O'Reilly and Mark Palmer to talk Scotland and, uh, and Ireland, I'm, I'm keen to get everyone's perspective. I think I know the answer to this, but on, on Italy, um, just very quickly, Alex, there, there is improvement in the Italian setup, but is it enough for them to get uh, that all important win in the championship? Bear in mind they play they play France in the first fixture, and then they go to uh, Twickenham to play England in the second. It's like having a two and a three in poker, really, isn't it? To be honest.
4: Yeah, I'm just looking at, the, at their list here. I don't think they'll expect to get much from the first two games. Where are they after that? Home to Ireland, home to Wales, and then away to Scotland. And it's always that. Yeah, you know, they've done alright at Murray Field in, um, in years gone by, but we say it all the time every year with, with Italy. that There are always sort of shoots of uh, of optimism. You know, at the moment you're looking at uh, at a player like Jake Peledry, who would get into pretty much any of the Six Nations teams. You know, he's, he's, he's such a good player. But he's injured. Uh, is he is, Okay. he
0: can't even get in the Gloucester team, Alex. He's... All
4: right, well, I can't <laughs> see any, I can't see any shoots for optimism at all. They couldn't even <laughs> sign Paolo Adogru, so no. I feel quite strongly about Italy. I,
3: I think enough's enough. Like, we, 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 I think we've been clutching on to players uh, and the odd performance. Like, they're simply not good enough. They're simply not good enough. They haven't got the player pool. They've had some great coaches go over there and try and do some work. I'm not saying that the the teams in the next tier of Europe are good enough, either they're not. There's a massive gulf between the top five teams and everyone else. But I think something's got to happen in the sense of... It probably won't happen, but it's even in the Pro 14, I think. Like, I think the Italian team should play in the French League. Um, logistically, it's much better for them. I think you should keep the Pro 14, like the Celtic League, like it was before. It's all getting too much of a mishmash. Um, I, I think then they, they can have, logistically, they'll have better travel playing in France. They can earn their right into Europe that way. But I think you've got to have promotion relegation. I know it won't happen for and That's another conversation. But if you're going to constantly put a glass ceiling on these teams beneath them, then we're never going to get improvement. You are never. And I just think with Italy, I'm pretty, I'd be pretty safe to say, oh, this could come back to, to bite me in the backside, but they're going to lose five games. And I just can't see, I, I just haven't seen any development whatsoever. And we, we we hold on to the odd game, but if we're being realistic, they're not going to compete. And I can't see it. For, for sure. Well, I
0: think here, here, Sam, I mean, it's uh, as someone who's half Italian, it's even more painful for me to say it, but I just think the fixture list, particularly this year, is just so brutal for them. You know, momentum is everything, belief is everything, injuries, uh, and strength in depth is everything. And I think if you've got you're away to, uh, or you got home a home against France, who, who are a very different France side than England and then Ireland, I mean, they could they could have half a squad left by the time they play,
2: uh, you know, the, the other games. I mean, so yeah, Sam, just, just love to know what you think should happen. It's, it's hard to disagree with you that, that, um, that Italy aren't up to scratch, but would you have a, a five nations or would you, would you just have a promotion relegation from, from the tier below, which doesn't really exist properly yet?
3: Yeah, I think we should have a promotion relegation. I think whatever, whoever comes bottom of the six nations should have a home fixture in the next international window against whoever won the tier two European competition. And if the, if the winner of the tier mm-hmm. two competition, say for example, if it's Georgia and Italy in this case, if they can go to Italy and beat Italy on their home ground, then they should go up into the six nations. So it doesn't give you, you know, just because you get relegated, doesn't mean you're definitely going to be gone. I still think they, they deserve a playoff game to give them a chance to stay up, mm. just to make sure that the team coming up isn't miles away. But but I I would love to see that to happen. I'm pretty sure if it was Italy paying Georgia for a Six Nations sort of qualifier, whether that was in the summer or whether it was the first
4: week of the autumn, whatever, I'm pretty sure that would get pretty good viewing figures. You know, we'd all yeah. be fascinated. I, to see how yeah, that I love out. I I love that idea. And as you know, as you can tell from my answer, so we are clutching at straws for positives around Italy. I think that's a a great idea. Yeah. It, would gen- it would generate interest. It would generate the competitiveness. It would give Georgia and 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 the second tier. A chance, you know, a chance to get up. I just think yeah. there's so many hurdles between it being a good idea and, and it actually happening. Because yeah.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few. I'll give you a few positives. Rome, <laughs> Barolo, Brunello, red wine. Uh, <laughs> the, be- the best post-match reception I've ever been to in my life, um, <laughs> and not a bad night out either, quite frankly. So uh, we can forgive them for all the missed tackles, all the inability to uh, to, play, to, to <laughs> In my, in my mind we're not taking Rome off the menu all right <laughs> and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Peter O'Reilly and Mark Palmer to uh, to bring some real rugby apart from Sam Warburton of course to bring some real rugby analysis and insight to this podcast at long last some long overdue Peter if I start with you first you won't have um, heard necessarily what we were chatting about previously but you wouldn't be unsurprised to say that England and France sort of start the tournament as joint favourites no one thinks Italy are going to win a game, but, but Rome's such a good place to go that they have to stay in the Six Nations. And uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll see a bit of improvement from Wales. But the first game against Ireland is the key. It's not exactly been a straightforward 12 months or 24 months for Andy Farrell either. But Ireland, uh, you feel like there's something building there. They've, they've unearthed one or two new players. I think they're a team with a point to prove, in my mind anyway. Their forward pack's been smashed on a couple of occasions against England and Uh, And I just feel that they've got got a point to prove. I I think Ireland could be a a real handful, this campaign.
5: We don't know. That's the whole thing about Ireland. There's a a sense that they've been treading water a little bit since the last World Cup and that the fairly inexperienced coaching team is still heading in. So it's hard to read the results from 2020. Nine games played, six wins, which were, were basically home wins over two wins over Wales at home, two wins over Scotland at home. But against England and France on the road, Ireland, you know, were smashed, as you said, physically, especially up front. So nobody's exactly sure what to make of the Andy Farrell era yet. There are reasons for some two main reasons. Well, first of all, on Saturday night, Tiger Furlong put in a 40 minute shift. Now, that's second string in the Pro 14 isn't exactly the Six Nations, but looked trim. He looked sharp and he'll definitely come into the 23. can't see him starting against Wales, but he's an energy energy giver. He's a carrier. He's a scrummager. He's a leader, all that sort of thing. So that's, that's one reason to feel positive. The second thing is Paul O'Connell is, is involved as forwards coach now. When he was a player, we used to attribute him superhuman qualities. It's a bit unfair to be giving him those qualities as a coach, given that his professional coaching experience is so limited. But all of the players... I think, who, who are there at the moment, seen him as a bit of a hero when they were younger. And he's going to bring, in, he's going to bring energy as well. And hopefully he will sort out the line out because it's, it's very hard to read Ireland's attacking game based on 2020 form because they weren't getting the sort of ball that they needed. So it starts with sorting out those uh, furlongs return and O'Connell's arrival are reasons to feel optimistic.
0: Yeah, Peter, um, I just want to push you on some of the players as well. I mean, obviously, Furlong back, Sexton and and... and Connor Murray still with with points to prove, even though uh, you know people are saying are they are they are they past their best? But with Sam here and myself here, obviously we cast an eye on the back row. I, I really like Caelan Dorris. I think he's the real deal. I think he's a, a super super player, and I think this might be the the tournament where people know much more about him. You know, and he, he makes a real impression. Am I uh, am I a bit premature there, or, or do you think he, you know he could be one of the stars of the uh, of the show? Yeah,
5: no, he's he's been very impressive. He isn't the biggest. Number eight, you know, and he doesn't look particularly explosive, but he seems to be made of rubber. He's got really good feet, so he tends to to slide out of, out of tackles, you know. So he gives something a little bit different. As we know from watching CJ for the last few years, he tends to be straight-line runner, doesn't tend to be an offloader, whereas Doris seems to be a little bit more of a footballer, might put people over. So he offers something a bit different. They have Henderson in the second row, and they have Furlong back. You know, they have Carrier's in in front row, second row, and back row, and then if they can give some front football, they have some some uh, some reasonable, reasonably kind of uh, uh, exciting attackers in, in the back line as well. With Larma coming back, Ringrose coming back, James Lowe is yet to prove himself at international level. Didn't look up to <laughs> Twickenham, but for Leinster, when he gets front football, he can be devastating. My cat has been given a bit of a, a pass as attack coach because he has the back line hasn't been given any. Front football but if they can manage to do that um, then then it might be a bit bit more of a handful as
0: an attacking uh, force. Mark I'm, I'm going to come on to to you yourself and, and Scotland obviously Finn Russell is uh, returned uh, all is well very peaceful return back to the squad uh, he seems to have settled back in and it, you know it seems to have got the right reaction from his teammates do you think uh, Scotland can be genuine contenders this year I mean they've got the the, the best fixture they could ever possibly hope to start with. I mean, albeit it's at Twickenham, but the 150th anniversary of the Calcutta Cup, I guess a lot will depend on on them getting off to a fast start against England
1: that's right honestly. I mean the traditionally very slow starters in this tournament in Scotland and there's no no margin for that to happen this year with, with England as you say first up and then Wales at home I think as you said Finn, Finn's return is, is huge last year um, he, he was only on the park for half an hour for Scotland in the whole of 2020 for various reasons as we know but there was a, you know the, the team having
5: been built purely on kind of X Factor and Pizzazz before that lacked that
1: massively last year the the balance went all the way back to um, you know the the fundamentals improved significantly around set scrum breakdown defence but all the things that kind of we we come to expect from Gregor's Scotland team were were missing in terms of you know what they do in attack. Finn's obviously a massive part of that but um, you'd also be hoping for some some more assistance from from the other boys in midfield as well, which is where I think the arrival right, well, of Cameron Redpath is a huge a huge boost potentially. He seems to be very much on the same wavelength as Russell and having that sort of second Distributor there will hopefully help them bring the, the back three into play. You've got some, some great guys there in, in Hogg, Van der Merva, and Darcy Graham, uh, but they weren't particularly well serviced last year or, or certainly consistently. Uh, and the hope that having a, an extra pair of fans in there for Finn and an extra pair of eyes as well will, will hopefully take some of that burden.
0: Sam, what do you make of Finn Russell? I mean, obviously, if everyone was picking a Lions team, they'd be, he'd certainly be part of that conversation. There, there's obviously that kind of whole risk reward kind of ratio. With with him, I, I was saying yesterday on on the on the telly that I'd like his highlights reel, but I'd like Owen Farrell's trophy cabinet. Really, I mean, he's uh, What I'm saying is, uh, Finn Russell does things that that no other player can do. But uh, does he do enough to win games?
3: Yeah, when you when you talk about lions, I guess it all depends on the coach. If you're looking at the coach this year who's Warren he's going to want quite a pragmatic 10 you know he's not going to want a 10 who he's going to be calling in at the end of the game. he's going a chip and chase in his own 22 when they're like leading by two <laughs> points like that's not the 10 he wants that's why probably it's taken players like say like for a Welsh perspective I know Warren's not coach now but say like Callum Sheedy why well it's taken him longer than probably people expected because it's taken about three injuries to Wales fly off for Callum Sheedy to get a chance because at international level you need someone to steer the ship you know and that's where I know people love to see flamboyant. Open rugby, um, but at test match level, what what wins rugby is a very astute kicking game, very good understanding, composure. You know, that That's what you need from your number 10, and to be defensively quite strong as well. Because you know, you look across all the home nations now, you know, you've got like Johnny Williams for Wales, you've got Bundy Henshaw, you've got these guys who are going to be flying into number 10s. So we, we, we've, you know, we've sat in te- enough team meetings where you say, right, we're going at number 10. You know, Finn Russell doesn't give opposition attacks too much choice, and like, they do tend to think, well, he's probably 13, 14 stone, we'll send a... 16, 17 stone powerhouse down his channel wherever he can, you know. So there's all these sorts of game you've got to shore up. Don't get me wrong. There's a talent. I think he's one of the best, most gifted handlers of the ball that we've probably seen, you know, in in many years. a phenomenal player and talent. If he suddenly turns up and he's got a really good kicking game and and really good balance to his play, then yeah, definitely, you know, Lions contender. But I think when you come to Six Nations, it's very different to, to playing for us in '92.
0: Mark, give us a, one or two players from, from Scotland's team that, that that we should be looking out for. Our listeners should be looking out for
1: the form of the two pro teams has not been good at all this year. But loads of things have gone into it around injuries and you know big blocks of unavailability with COVID and, and test commitments. But you know guys like Van der Merwe on the wing who, who made a great impression in in the autumn uh, in his first kind of availability. He you know his strike rate and the the Pro 14 i this cup speaks for itself in the last number of years. As I said, Redpath, I think, is, is a really Big addition in a number of ways in terms of how they want to play the game. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing a bit more of Gary Graham in the back row as well. He's only had a couple of caps off the bench so far, but Scotland have long been crying out for that kind of ball-carrying number 8 We've got two excellent flankers in, in Richie and Watson, but nobody's really nailed that jersey between them. And But I think he has the sort of abrasiveness and the energy and the all-round game to do that. So looking forward to seeing a bit more of him too.
0: Peter, uh, before I come to Owen and Alex on Ireland and Scotland as well, from your perspective, obviously they won three Ireland out of five under Andy Farrell last season, losing obviously to the two teams uh, above them. But I mean, what, what constitutes success for you? I mean, I, you seem to think, and, and many people say, well, we're not quite sure what we're going to get from Ireland. I, I, th- I think they're going to surprise a few people really this season if they keep everyone fit. But, but what do the Irish public want from, from, from Andy Farrell's team?
5: The Irish public has got used to a level of success, which certainly wasn't around when I was growing up. It's 2013 is the last time that Ireland finished in the bottom half of the Six Nations since then, they've had a Grand Slam and two titles. That's you know three titles under Joe Schmidt. So levels of expectation are pretty high now. So if Ireland weren't to finish in the top half, questions would be asked about whether Andy Farrell is the guy that, that should be taking them towards the next World Cup. If they finished third, sort of on a sort of that that mezzanine level just below England and France, I think <laughs> that that will be acceptable and. If they, if they produce performances against France and England, if they play a bit of rugby against France and England, again, that will, be, that will give reasons for hope. If they were to pick England or France off, like say France, second round, coming to Dublin, none of that French team have ever won in Dublin. Not that I know home advantage is diluted now. But say they were to, to pick France off in that game, and maybe a four out of five, then you're talking about they've turned a corner and there's a renewed optimism. So I think... Third, is exitable anything in the bottom half? Then we're, you know, all better off or to, we're asking questions.
0: Alex um, and Owen, just a quick word on uh, on Scotland and Ireland respectively for, for you. Alex, go uh, with Scotland against England. I mean, I guess, you know, if they get off to that good start, then then it could be an interesting campaign.
4: Uh, yes. I mean, if, if they get off to that good start. I, I, what I found interesting listening to those guys, when Peter was talking about Ireland, and you know the mezzanine level, and if, if they finish third, they start against Wales, and and that's pretty much what Sam was saying at the start of this conversation. That you know, that that first game, Wales Ireland, is huge in terms of of where the, where those two teams could go in the in the remainder of the, of the championship. And I think you, you start with England Scotland and, and Wales Ireland. The, the tournament gets off to a to a rapid start, and and but but for Wales and Ireland, it, it it could shape the rest of the championship.
0: And, and Owen, I guess the question I, I probably should have asked Peter was, why can't Ireland play like Leinster, and and will Mike Cat get more out of that this Ireland? Backline than,
2: than possibly we've seen in the last couple of years. Their problem since Farrell's taken over is that is their forwards haven't dominated and provided the kind of ball that uh, uh, that they need. I mean that's what Pete was saying. That's why uh, Mike Katz sort of had a, sort of a bit of a free pass yet, and people haven't been able to uh, uh, really assess his contribution because he hasn't had, had much ball to play with. I, I think that um, whole island project um, has really sort of been becalmed in this in their first year. Uh, and, and I'm sure they know that, but they, they have this. They have this. The, the problem facing Andy Farrell is he hasn't been able to move on the halfbacks into the next generation, uh, and that's largely because he can't identify who the next generation is. Well, the well, the other the
0: other slightly controversial question, which is probably not for this pod, but the second best fly half in Ireland is Paddy Jackson, without a shadow of a doubt, and uh, you know for lots of uh, reasons he, uh, you know, one playing outside of. Uh, Uh, of of Ireland and secondly because you know of his previous court case he probably won't get picked for Ireland but uh, if anyone who saw him play yesterday and has been watching him all season you've got to say that he's a worthy understudy to uh, to the likes of uh, sexton and possibly uh, billy burns
2: that's a really interesting point because because um they've been waiting for joey carberry to come back from injury and, and he seems to be just permanently mired there they can't that they, they can't find someone good enough to step up and as you say lawrence paddy jackson's been playing really really well and he's got he's got plenty of caps from from his pre-court case era there, there, there is an answer there but as you say no one, no one wants it um, i just want i want to go to uh, to the quick fire round and um, and i'm
0: i'm not going to necessarily put anyone under pressure to say where they think their own country might finish in the uh, in the tournament uh, although you can if you want but uh, quick fire round really just to to all of you i'll start with you sam winners and w- winners of the tournament overall and will there be a grand
3: slam oh gosh good one i'm mean, quick fire that's tough it's between england and france so i think Grand Slam. There's always an upset. See, I don't think there'll be a Grand Slam because they've been upset, but I expect England to win.
2: Owen, yeah, I th- I think England win, and I think they do a Grand Slam. Am I allowed one more sentence? I just think that, that that they won in the autumn, and there's so much more to give from there. They can they can they can go up uh, up a level easy. Arthur,
4: yeah, I think. I think predicting a grand slam is notoriously dangerous but the way the fixtures are and if I'm picking England to beat France at home then I'm picking England to do the grand slam as well.
0: I still think that that fixture England France is is pivotal I think whoever wins that wins the tournament but I don't think that there will be a grand slam because I think bar Italy I think every tour, every team in this tournament's got one big performance in them. Uh, and, I, and and I, and i think that one you know that that will mean that there won't be a grand slam uh, you know if england beat france i could see them being beaten by by one of the others as well possibly possibly ireland in dublin which i think is a you know if i'm an irish forward now i can't wait for that game because yeah. i've been absolutely battered by england probably last two or three fixtures and they, they owe England big time and I think that one could be the one where England slip up but lots lot to happen before then Sam players to look out for and you know cast the net as wide as
3: you like so to start outside of Wales I, I really think van der Merwe is one for Scotland he's somebody who could be well I say dark horse now perhaps not so much in two months time but dark horse for the British Lions really like his power I just I just think he's just a real good modern day winger from a Welsh perspective from a Welsh hat on I said it before but I I think Johnny Williams is a dark horse at 12. I think Johnny Williams has been looking really good for Wales. I was gutted when he had to pull out with injury at the end of the Autumn Nations Cup. I was really looking forward to seeing how he's going to go. But I've just seen him grow and grow in that 12 shirt. So he's got... And then Thomas Williams at nine, he's back fit for, for Wales. I think he's also a contender looking for ahead to the summer. For, he's a Lions quality player as well. So from Wales' perspective, yeah, I'd look out for Johnny Williams and uh, and Thomas Williams.
0: Alex, um, fr- from you, any players uh, across, the, across the teams that, that you've got your eye on? I'm really excited to see...
4: I had that, uh, Van der Merwe too written down. Um, I, had, I haven't seen as much Pro 14 rugby as, as Sam would have done, but I've seen what he's done in, in European games. And, and obviously he made a big start in the autumn. So, I, And obviously everything now is, you know, we look at through a Lions prism and Van der Merwe does look to me like the kind of player that Warren Gatland would want to take into a series against the Springboks. From an England perspective, Eddie rotates his squad a little bit each time. He's, got, he's brought in, as we said earlier, Adogru and, and Randall. I'd be excited to see both. Just don't know whether whether we'll get to see much of either. And so it comes down to Ellis Genge. And I look forward to seeing Ellis as England's first choice loose head at the moment. People still have doubts about his, his scrummaging ability. And I would... I would back him to to prove those doubters wrong. I'm 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 excited by what he could do. Yeah,
2: three three players really want to see what Cameron Redpath does for Scotland if he's given the chance. Is he the player that England are going to be going? We should have just made more effort on that front. He could have been played for England. I really want to see uh, Matthew Jalibert uh, filling in for Entomat for France. uh, Entomac was brilliant, but Jalibert was the sort of the the, the golden boy before Entomac you know, had, had come through into senior level. So, uh, so Jalibert will be interesting, and, and for England, Sam Underhill unavailable. Does that make Benall a first choice for the back row? Possibly. There is a kid who is absolutely desperate to uh, to show how good he is, and I think he's very good indeed. Well, just from my point of view, for the for
0: the star value, Toji, I love watching him play. If he can carry on that that rich vein of form, I think for France, often when when players get awards, you know, we tend to sort of overlook them really. But Anton Dupont is just gold. You know, he's absolute gold, and I agree with you, Jalibert, and also Damien Peno as well. I have to say, for oh yeah. I'm, I love watching him play. You know, he, he's sort of uh, wiry, but just so skillful. So, really looking forward to, uh, to, to you know, to seeing him play. And I think I mentioned him earlier on, Caelan Doris. I think he's a he's a really good number eight, and I think he could be the best number eight in the tournament.
4: I can't so, wait to see Jake Pledgerick. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, you'll see Jake Pelleggi because he'll be sat a couple of seats away from you watching the game, uh, Alex. Um, well, there you have it. All of our ruck experts have, have spoken, which means that uh, probably that uh, all of it is, uh, is irrelevant and nothing like that will happen. But uh, I'm sure all of you are looking forward to uh, the Six Nations kicking off with Italy against France 2-15 on Saturday. My thanks to... Sam Warburton, Alex Lowe, Owen Slott, as well as Mark Palmer and Peter O'Reilly. The Ruck will be back next Monday when we'll know who are the winners and the losers on the opening weekend of the Six Nations. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.